at least we ought to expect that our elected and public health officials would understand this. If you're not symptomatic, you're not infectious, you cannot be subject legally, constitutionally to quarantine. So I think that's the most important thing to take away from this case, is that we really ought to avoid fear, drop down, look at science, and demand from our officials across this country that they respect science and act reasonably and rationally based on science. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice software management program for lawyers at goclio.com. Since the 14th century, diseases such as black death, leprosy, cholera, typhoid fever, and Ebola have haunted the psyche of mankind and have led to the detainment of people for the common good. Of course, we're talking about the use of mandatory isolation and quarantine as a means of protecting a population from a deadly disease. But what does that mean for the rights of the individual? And building on the prior recent outbreak of Ebola, has caused healthcare authorities at both the federal and state levels to isolate and quarantine several American citizens, from doctors and nurses to grade school students. These recent exercises of government power have been aimed at individuals feared to have been exposed to the deadly disease. Today we're going to talk about the uh, legal implications of, of quarantine, uh, and uh, to help us do that, uh, we have two guests. First of all, joining us today is Gary Phelan. Gary Phelan is a shareholder at the law firm of Mitchell & Sheehan, B.C., where he represents employees and employers in a wide range of matters, including disability and age discrimination, family responsibilities discrimination, wrongful termination, and severance negotiations. Uh, with particular pertinence to today's discussion, Gary Phelan was recently involved as the attorney representing a Connecticut girl, a Connecticut family whose girl, whose daughter was not allowed to return to school after she had attended a family wedding in Nigeria for fear that she'd been exposed to Ebola. Uh, that case, which received national attention, has uh, since been settled, and uh, the girl has returned to school. And uh, although Mr. Phelan won't be able to get into the details of that case, he is here with us today to discuss individual rights and the legal implications for those who are isolated and quarantined. So welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Gary Phelan. Thank you. And in addition, Bob, we've got joining us today Professor John Thomas from Quinnipiac University School of Law, where he teaches health law and intellectual property. He's been published over 170 times on topics such as gun violence, health policy, politics, autism, juvenile justice, and music. In addition, he's spoken on health law topics across the U.S. and internationally. And finally, kind of surprisingly, he's a freelance writer and a guitar player with a recent literary work titled Kalamazoo Gals, A Story of the Extraordinary Women and Gibson's Banner Guitars of World War II. Welcome, Professor John Thomas. My pleasure to be here. 
Well, before we get into the discussion, a little bit more background on this. According to the World Health Organization, the average fatality rate for those who contract the Ebola fever is 50%. The virus was transmitted to people from wild animals and spreads in the human population through human-to-human transmission. Ebola first appeared in 1976 in two simultaneous outbreaks, one in Sudan and the other in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The latter occurred in a village near the Ebola River, from which the disease derived its name. The current outbreak in West Africa, with the first cases notified in March of 2014, is the largest and most complex Ebola outbreak since the virus was discovered in 1976. Well, so one of the questions that we wanted to ask uh, Professor Thomas is, What's the legal construct of the government to be able to quarantine people in situations like Ebola outbreaks? Sure. We, obviously, we have a federalist system, so two sets of governments governing all of our conduct, the federal and the state. Under the federal government, the authority comes from Congress, which passed the Public Health Service Act just uh, during World War II, 1944, in fact. And that provides the Health and Human Services Secretary the ability to issue quarantine orders, and the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, implement those orders. The federal government has authority to quarantine only for those diseases listed by the president on an executive order. And in this context, the executive order includes hemorrhagic fever, which is what Ebola is. So that's the federal government. The federal government has control over any patient with an infectious disease moving across international boundaries or across state lines. Within the state, we reflect upon the state government, and states have an inherent authority to protect the safety and health of their populations. It's called the police power. Uh, it makes sense, sort of intuitive language. And that gives the state inherent authority to make orders about quarantine or isolation. In most states, those orders come from the public health official. In some states, those orders come from the governor. Gary Phelan, I, I know that my uh, understanding is you don't want to get in to the details of, of your case, but in your case, uh, this really wasn't, as far as I understand it, the, the state uh, or, or the federal government, this was uh, something that came from uh, the local school. After your experience with this, what, do you think that local entities like this or, or state or federal entities have a legitimate interest in attempting to quarantine citizens in this manner? Well, they certainly have a legitimate interest, as reflected, you know, by, by the police powers and, and their authorized act in the interest of public safety. The problem is when those determinations are made by public opinion polls um, and not based on medical evidence. Uh, in my case, the the reason why it wasn't it wasn't a quarantine uh, issue and wasn't triggered by um, you know all the things we're going to talk about with quarantine because. It involved a student who was not allowed to go to school. Uh, so she was barred from entry as opposed to being quarantined under the state, you know, the, the governmental police powers. Uh, and that's why that case was under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act covering state and local governments when they act, in this case providing educational services, uh, if in, in the basis for the case was that they were treating her, they were perceiving her as having a disability based on the fear of Ebola and were, and were taking action based on that presumption in order, if they were to do that, they would have to meet under the Americans with Disabilities Act, what's known as the direct threat defense, and they couldn't do that because she had not been diagnosed you know, with any sort of medical issue whatsoever, let alone Ebola. 
So that's the difference between what we're going to be talking about with respect to quarantines and where there's uh, essentially alleged discriminatory action against an individual, uh, but that, that is separate and apart from a, an official quarantine. Well, I hear you saying they're different, uh, and, yet it, and yet it seems that part of the uh, public confusion about this is that a lot of the talk of quarantine seems to be driven by fear and misunderstanding uh, more, more than by science uh, or law. Again, just from, what, from what's been publicly reported about your case, uh, the little girl had been to Nigeria where there hadn't been a case of Ebola, of Ebola in several months, and there was no reason to suspect she had been exposed to it. And, and, and we, we we seem to see that kind of fear-driving uh, quarantine decisions, or at least uh, desire to quarantine individuals here. That's correct. And that's what I think was the catalyst for a lot of the, you know, the outcry. Uh, one of the things, I mean, first of all, we've seen all of what kind of we went through with, with uh, you know, fear of Ebola uh, was resurrecting, you know, 25 to 30 years ago with respect to the fear of AIDS. Uh, the uncertainty and therefore, you know, assuming worst uh, with respect to how uh, a disease can be transmitted uh, was driven by fear and not facts. And um, that's why I think one of the important things is that, as is reflected by the leading, you know, the, the Supreme Court's discussion in the leading case involving quarantine, a case involving Jacobson versus Massachusetts, it's not just the justification for imposing a quarantine, uh, but also balancing with, with an individual's rights. Um, and that's why the, you know, the resounding chorus during this time period is, well, gee, you're only being, you know, um, confined uh, you know, for 21 days, so you you ought to think of what what is more important for the collective good. Um, first, when it's just based on irrational fear, an individual's you know liberty should not be detained during that process. Secondly, to the extent it's going to be, it it has to be based on medical facts and not, for example, any of the cases you know involving Ebola, because you happen to be on the same continent where in three of the 52 countries, there's an outbreak of a very serious life-threatening disease. What are the legitimate defenses that an individual who is quarantined, as opposed to isolated, but just quarantined, what defenses does that person have against the quarantine order? Well, in large measure, the defense is based on constitutional law. As Gary's pointed out, it's the question of balancing public interest in protecting the health and welfare of the population versus an individual's privacy and liberty interest. It's a constitutional balancing test, and we look at what is the threat to the public versus what is the constraint on individual liberty. And so the primary tool that a person has to fight this any action by any state authority, whether it be a school, a public school, or the state itself, or a federal government, is to bring a case alleging the deprivation of constitutional liberty interests. Is it a Fifth Amendment taking argument? It's, it's a due process argument. So it's either the Fifth Amendment due process clause versus the federal government or the 14th Amendment. Right. So it's a due process argument, and all of the major cases, including the Jacobson case that Gary cited, have sounded in that theory. And it, again, it's a balancing test. How, how does the court exercise the balance? What are the factors that the court considers in that balance? What do they look at? Simply what I've said. Simply it's how legitimate and how pressing the interest of the federal government or the state government, how pressing and important that interest is, versus how restrictive the action, here we're talking quarantine, how restrictive that action is on the liberty of the person affected. And it's simply that, a balance. If balance comes out in favor of one or the other, then the court so rules. 
Uh, it's also how they are administering it. Is are they doing in the least? Are they carrying that out in the least restrictive means? For example, uh, with you know, there's alternatives to quarantine, uh, such as what is, what is happening now uh, with respect to healthcare workers who are returning from you know from West Africa, is monitoring them. Um, monitoring you, you can be you know carrying out your your uh, obligation with respect to public safety by in these this case for example making sure they are you know taking their temperature twice a day uh, that they're being examined and, and in contact with healthcare professionals not necessarily being quarantined. Right, I think that played out very very explicitly in the case of the nurse from Maine, Ms. Hickox, when she returned, uh, as we all know. Moments upon her landing, essentially, uh, Governor Christie in New Jersey issued a quarantine order. She objected to that. He eventually chartered an airplane and flew her back to her home state in Maine, where the Maine public health authorities wanted to quarantine her. And she objected to that, and the state government brought lawsuit. And as a result, there's a decision by a trial court judge who did exactly this kind of discussion and concluded that there wasn't sufficient public threat to quarantine her, and instead issued an order mandating that she do what the CDC has said to do, which is simply to monitor her own health, take her temperature daily, report into public health officials. Because we know with this illness, if you're asymptomatic, you're not infectious. That's only when you become symptomatic. And as the main judge recognized, once you become infectious, that is symptomatic, suddenly now the state does have a sufficient interest to issue quarantine orders. But prior to that, the state does not have a sufficient interest. And as a result, she was allowed to leave her home. John, what is our experience with quarantine in this country? When when have have we ever had a major quarantine? What past examples have there been that that are helping to inform how we're handling uh, the situation now? Well, there aren't very many past examples because we have rarely faced illnesses that either scare us sufficiently or present a sufficient scientific risk to justify quarantine. Right? Uh, the earliest ones were yellow fever back in the eighteen late eighteen seventies. Uh, the next one would be the pandemic flu. Uh, problem in 1918 to 1919. And of course, there were some modest attempts at quarantine during the early stages of the AIDS crisis. And those are essentially it. There have been a few cases off and on since that time, but those are the major events. What type of redress does uh, Casey Hickox have for being unjustly quarantined? Uh, Can she sue for damages? Or does it just, sorry, we quarantined you, now you get your life back? Yeah, there's roughly no redress whatsoever. As I was talking about a moment ago, you can, when you're being forced into quarantine, challenge that quarantine action under constitutional doctrine, or as Gary has suggested in some context, use the Americans with Disabilities Act. But once you're in quarantine um, and you lose that argument whether you're going to be quarantined, there are roughly no rights. For instance, no state quarantine law provides for compensation during the time you've been quarantined. None. You lose. If this is a 21-day quarantine we're talking about with Ebola. We can imagine folks in circumstances in life where they need that paycheck, and they can't get paid, and they can't get compensation from the state. In addition, only 10 of the U.S. states prohibit employers from firing people who've been quarantined. Yeah, Gary, Gary I'm wondering what, what your response to that is from an employment uh, point of view. I mean, what, what if somebody uh, were, were in, say, you know, visiting Africa on, on a work, work-related assignment? Uh, I, I suppose then, uh, I don't know, is this workers' comp? Is this, are there some other benefits or entitlements they may have there? Well, I think, um, you know, these issues are percolating uh, due to the, you know, the nature of, of many employees where they travel. Uh, and I think employers are trying to, 
kind of grasp this issue with, with respect to travel into Africa. Certainly, I think that if, if some of these, de, you know, is due to the effects of a quarantine or any restrictions whatsoever, is not allowed to physically go to work. First of all, you know, more and more people are working from home anyway, but to the extent they can't do that, they should still be compensated because the fact that, that due their employer is telling them do not go to work um, does, you know, it's, it's not their choice not to go to work. So, so I think that they ought to be compensated. Um, but I think some of these, you know, we're kind of in uncharted waters here and uh, with respect to the impact uh, this you know, presumably is going to start to have on American workplaces because there's so much uh, of the, the workplace now involves people traveling to a wide variety of areas, including Africa. And Gary makes a good yeah. point about the morality of compensating people for lost work. But again, no state provides a right to compensation. There is no legal theory that justifies compensation. And the offending party, the government, has immunity from liability under these circumstances in states. So though we might think there's a moral right to it, there is no legal right to obtain compensation. How does it work internationally? Do we have international treaties or accords among various countries that deal with quarantine? In other words, don't release your people and put them on a plane because you know society has changed much from what it has been and exposed three or 400 people to the particular virus. What are the international laws? Craig, we're going to pick up uh, your question in just a second. But uh, before we move on to continue with your question, we need to take a short break and hear a quick word from our sponsor, Clear. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Bob Ambrogi, and with me today is Gary Phelan from Mitchell and Sheehan, P.C., and Professor John Thomas from Quinnipiac University School of Law, talking about legal rights uh, and Ebola quarantine. Uh, before we broke, uh, Craig had just asked a question, and uh, Craig, want to re-ask that again? What are the international treaties and accords that apply to quarantine in various other countries, and in particular in this one, the countries where Ebola has broken out? Do we have agreements that require them to quarantine people and not put them on plane, exposing the three or 400 people on those planes to this particular disease? We have a rough structure in place. Those are the international health regulations promulgated by the World Health Organization. And all 194 member states have agreed to abide by those regulations. That covers just about every country in the world except Liechtenstein. Um, I suppose Liechtenstein decided it's just too small to worry about such things. But anyway, 
Uh, the, the regulations do not provide for international enforcement mechanisms. So we can't, as United States member to that organization and a party to those regulations, we can't uh, bring lawsuit in international court or something to force another country to quarantine. But the regulations do a couple of things. The first thing they do is with respect to any sort of significant communicable disease, the member countries are obligated to report that to the community, all the other 193 countries. In addition, the signatories are required to have in place a public health infrastructure that does provide for quarantine, that does provide for isolation, that does provide for treatment for people infected. So in large measure, the response, once we provided this announcement through this international mechanism to all the countries in the world, the mechanism then after that for making sure we cooperate is just the general notion of comity. That is, that we treat one another like we would want to be treated under international law. And it seems to have worked pretty well in this case. We know that Thomas Duncan, the fellow who left West Africa and landed in Dallas, he, the reason he was able to do that was he was not symptomatic in the Dallas airport, and so he was allowed to get on the plane. But it, the uh, West African countries were monitoring temperature and sending questionnaires, handing questionnaires to the folks waiting in line for airplanes. So the system worked pretty well, and it's, that's all we have in place. What individual liability do those people that travel from uh, this country, from Africa to the United States, and potentially expose others to the disease? What liability does that individual have to others that they expose to this disease? Uh, essentially two doctrines, and we can look back again to the early period of the HIV crisis. Um, there's tort, that is civil liability. There were lawsuits maintained, and some were successful for people negligently or sometimes intentionally transmitting the virus. So we could imagine that if I know that I'm symptomatic, I know that I am infectious, if I nonetheless go out into the public and infect somebody, there could be a tort liability assigned to that with the general typical measure of damages for losses. In addition, again, looking to the HIV cases and sometimes hepatitis and other cases, once in a while criminal liability attaches. But in that case, in most circumstances, most kinds of crimes, you've got to, as a prosecutor, prove an element of intent. And it's that rare case where we can prove intent. So um, I suppose if you negligently expose somebody and they die, negligent homicide is a possibility. A reckless disregard is usually the intent in that case. Um, and in a couple of cases in HIV, there were allegations of parties in sexual encounters intentionally trying to infect somebody else. So we would have those two theories in place. The good thing in our country is that everybody who's been exposed in this country has been cured. You noticed at the outside of the program, there's a 50% mortality rate in Africa for this disease. There's a 100% cure rate, that is a 0% mortality rate in the U.S. for those who get treatment uh, as soon as they're symptomatic. We know Thomas Duncan was rejected from the hospital and spent three days at home and came back very, very sick. So he did not survive. But beyond that, we have a 100% cure rate. Gary, we, we've talked a little bit about the uh, some of the international aspects of this. I wonder if we can bring it back down to the local level. And I, I'm wondering, I'm curious from your involvement in, in this particular case, uh, if you have any advice really for other lawyers who, who may encounter this situation, whether whether it's their local school board comes comes to them saying they have this fear or uh, or, or an individual uh, comes to them saying they're fearful that they're suspected uh, of, of having Ebola. How, how should how should lawyers out there, what what, should, what do they need to know? How can they be equipped to handle these kinds of cases? The first thing is just to, um, uh, I think, from the, well, from the standpoint of school districts, 
for example, because that's where a lot of the sorts of cases like the one I handled uh, have popped up because, you know, it may be parents, staff uh, who, are, who are complaining and fearful and are very vocal about it and, and school districts respond to them. It may be you have to make unpopular decisions, um, but you have to make those decisions based on, again, on, on medical facts, medical evidence, rely on the authorities that are out there, such as the CDC, uh, and not the Internet and social media, um, because that's what I think was driving a lot of the fear in this case. From the standpoint of, of lawyers, I think first, you, you know, you get as many facts as, as you can, um, and like everything else, I mean, we, even though this is kind of a, you know, it's a new arena, we're still applying the same law. Like we're seeing that now, for example, with respect to employment law, where you have, um, you know, a lot of issues emerging with respect to social media. The law doesn't change. It's just applying it to a new setting. And it's the same principle here of talking about, you know, all the various principles that, that John was talking about with respect to tort law, with respect to criminal law. Uh, with respect to um, discrimination law, and you apply it to these sorts of situations and to see how is this person being treated, what is the basis of, of the treatment, is there, you know, is there a medical justification for it, and because to, to try to identify what, what, uh, you know, what claims may, may arise. Uh, this circumstance, for example, that, that I talked that, you know, talked about, I was unaware of a single case in the country involving the ADA and Ebola. Uh, but I've certainly have, you know, co-authored a treatise on ADA and, and, you know, worked and taught in this area. Those basic principles apply to this case. Um, and that's why I, you know, filed the case as an ADA case, even though it wasn't, you know, it wasn't obvious that it that from the standpoint of people who are not very familiar with ADA that it was such a case. And to be, you know, be creative. The nature of, of how these cases may emerge uh, lend themselves, you know, to creativity. Also, to, you know, I, I don't think even though, you know, you know, this time it was Ebola, a year from now, maybe something else. Uh, it may be that uh, now that, you know, words like quarantine are not now part of the lexicon, you know, you might start to see these sorts of measures taken with respect to genuine things to be fearful of in this country, such as the flu, uh, which often become epidemic, you know, around around this time of year, around the winter in schools and colleges. So um, that that's what my overall advice would be. Thank you. Uh- we're getting near the end of our time for this program, and uh, we always like to close by giving our guests uh, an opportunity to share their final thoughts on this topic. As you do that, I also invite you to uh, let our listeners know how they can follow up with you if they care to do that. So, uh, John Thomas, let's start with you. I think this is a really interesting and instructive case for the United States public, its court systems, and, of course, its lawyers. It presents that classic battle of the public's interest in protecting the populace from threatening diseases versus the individual's liberty interest and not suffering from government constraint absent good reason. And as Gary has mentioned, the leading principle here ought to be science. In this case, we have an illness that is not transmissible unless you are symptomatic. So the public ought to be aware of this. They've had a hard time coming to terms with that. But at least we ought to expect that our elected and public health officials, that is our governors and our typically public health departments, would understand this. If you're not symptomatic, you're not infectious, you cannot be subject legally, 
constitutionally to quarantine. So I think that's the most important thing to take away from this case is that we really ought to avoid fear, drop down, look at science and demand from our officials across this country that they respect science and act reasonably and rationally based on science. Thank you very much. And if our listeners wanted to follow up uh, with you, where can they find out more about what you're up to? Easiest way to find me is to go on the Quinnipiac's website or just email me at john.thomas at quinnipiac.edu. And Quinnipiac is Q-I-N-N-I-P-I-A-C. Thanks. Thanks a lot. And Gary Phelan, your final thoughts. Well, I I certainly uh, would echo everything John said. And I think one of the important things is also to keep in mind that what makes the United States unique is the value we place on the individual, the individual's rights, the individual's liberty, um, that we're not just acting for the, the public good, but we, we balance that with, with an individual's um, rights that, that are important. And so as to not, again, make public policy based on fear, based on public opinion polls, based on what, you know, the cable news networks are saying, but, but to base it on facts, base it on law, base it on the, you know, the medical authorities who are providing us with guidance, because, and even though, you know, it might not be perfect, it's a whole lot better than, than the other alternative sources that people are relying on throughout this whole ordeal. The best way to reach me, I think, is by telephone. I'm in my practice with a firm in Stratford, Connecticut. Uh, the phone number here is 203-873- Thank you very much. Uh, John Thomas is a professor at Quinnipiac University School of Law, where he teaches health law and intellectual property. And uh, Gary Phelan is a shareholder at Mitchell & Sheehan in Stratford, Connecticut. Thanks to both of you uh, for taking the time to share your uh, insights on this today. Thank you. A real pleasure to be here. Thank you. I enjoy it. And uh, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, This is Bob Ambrogi, uh, and uh, on behalf of myself and J. Craig Williams, thanks for listening, and please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.